This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 216th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Showtime. Academy Award nominee Benedict Cumberbatch stars in the new Showtime limited event series, Patrick Melrose. In this tour de force performance, Cumberbatch brings to life the story of one man's journey toward redemption and survival. Patrick Melrose premieres May 12th, only on Showtime. My guest today is one of the funniest women, correction, one of the funniest people in the world, Samantha B. The Canadian-born comic was the longest-serving and first female correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show, with a tenure there spanning 12 years from 2003 through 2015. Then, at roughly the same time that host Jon Stewart left the show, she did too, heading to TBS as the creator, writer, executive producer, and host of TBS's Full Frontal with Samantha B, which made her the first woman ever to host a late-night satire show. The 21-minute, once-a-week program debuted on February 8, 2016, and thanks largely to B's on-screen persona as a woman raging against idiocy, quickly found a large and passionate following. Within a year, its viewership was up 167%, and it was the most watched late-night show among people in the much-prized 18-34 demographic. And within two years, it was nominated for the Best Variety Talk Series Emmy and won the Emmy for Best Writing for a Variety Special, in recognition of its one-time offshoot, Not the White House Correspondents' Dinner. While Samantha Bee makes no bones about the fact that she would prefer that Donald Trump had not been elected president, I think it's a fairly safe bet that Donald Trump would prefer that Samantha Bee had not been entrusted with her own show. In getting one, she not only broke a glass ceiling, she also acquired a perch through which she constantly checks Trump and keeps the rest of us laughing. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my colleague Seth Abramovich, a senior writer here who has written a terrific piece in this week's issue about Jeffrey Tambor. Tambor, of course, is the veteran character actor best known for The Larry Sanders Show, Arrested Development, and, most recently, Transparent, a show about a person, largely inspired by creator Jill Soloway's father, who comes out as a woman after living for decades as a man. That show debuted on Amazon in September of 2014, and Tambor was awarded the Best Actor in a Comedy Series Emmy in 2015 and 2016 in recognition of his work on its first two seasons and he was nominated for it again in 2017 in recognition of his work on its third. The show's fourth season dropped in September of 2017. In October of 2017, allegations of widespread sexual misconduct by Harvey Weinstein sparked the Me Too and Time's Up movements that brought forward allegations of sexual misconduct against many other powerful men in Hollywood. And in November of 2017, Tambor became one of them, and ultimately was fired from Transparent, in February of 2018. Now, three months later, he has opened up at length for the first time in The Hollywood Reporter. Seth, congrats on a fascinating story. For people who may not know, can you set this up a little bit and just tell us what Jeffrey Tambor has been accused of that that turned this really illustrious career kind of upside down in the last year? Sure. There's two accusers that have come up publicly. One is Van Barnes, who is a trans woman who was his assistant. They met on the set. She moved here from Missouri to be his assistant. And during the first sweep of Me Too, you know, proclamations online, she got caught up in it and wrote her own on Facebook in which she made a lot of 
accusations that he used to pat her on the butt, that he would speak very dirty to her, that he subjected her to listening to porn while she was in the next room, and that he would make sort of propositions to her that if she slept with him, he would pay her a, a decent salary, which she said she wasn't making. She never mentioned his name in it, but everyone in the community knew that she was his assistant. It had to be him. Mm-hmm. That immediately started an Amazon Studios investigation into her claims. After that, a second accuser, Trace Lissette, who's an actress on the show, who plays a character named Shay, came forward actually to The Hollywood Reporter and myself with her own set of accusations. Hers were different. They were that he would sort of be too handsy, too kissy. He would kiss her on the lips. He was very sort of friendly to her at the beginning. Then she said he crossed a line when they were shooting a famous scene that went viral in which he's trying to learn how to say the expression Yas Queen. And that uh, when she first came out in her pajamas, he said that he wanted to attack her sexually. And then after they started, they were shooting it, he sort of cornered her on the set. He was wearing sort of a pajamas or a robe as well. And he was sort of thrusting against her and she could feel his genitalia against him. And that was what she felt was a fireable offense. So she came forward with that accusation. And those were the two that Amazon then investigated. And then subsequently it came out from one of these women, both of whom are trans, right? One of them said that Tambor had lived at her home for a period of weeks when his home was being renovated and had been caught watching her sleeping in the nude. Is that right? Something like that. Basically, it wasn't renovated, but he lives on the East Coast in Katona, New York. And so when he was shooting the show, he was being put up in a house in the Pacific Palisades. And the house wasn't ready for him a couple weeks before shooting was to start. And he was sort of responsible for his own lodging at that point. And the two accusers were both house-sitting the house that belongs to one of the producer's parents. It's, it's a very strange story, but basically he said, oh, that, that house has an extra bedroom. Could I stay there? And they said, uh, sure, I guess. And for two weeks, he was living with them. And that's when Van Barnes claims uh, he had later admitted to her that he was observing her sleep naked. And Tambor, to you acknowledges that he stayed in that home, disputes the idea that he ever was watching somebody sleep naked, and also disputes any of the other sexual allegations that have been made against him, right? Yes. He sort of gives me a flat denial of of anything involving sexual harassment or sexual behavior, and a umbrella admission to anything that involves verbally castigating or, you know, these tantrums, anything that involves sort of abuse that isn't sexual he takes responsibility for anything that is sexual, he denies. And what he really seems to imply, I think, and correct me if you disagree, but he seems to be saying to you that he really thinks the root of the desire to to kind of get him is that the trans community, which this show has shown a light on for several years now, has now kind of increasingly arrived at the conclusion that they do not like a cisgender person playing the lead of a show about trans people. They call it trans face, like blackface. And that Jill Soloway, the creator of the show, who now, since the show has been on on Amazon, identifies no longer as a woman, but rather as gender non-binary, as a now a member of the LGBTQ community, that Jill Soloway also felt pressured now to essentially cut ties with him in order to placate the LGBTQ community. Is there any reason to believe that that is actually the case? I'm going to abstain from from, <laughs> from that. That is just it's this is where it gets super thorny and different from any other Me Too case and that there's all this sort of sexual political stuff going on in the background that led up to it. And you're right, he does strongly suggest that this was a sort of setup that certain powers that be or or people around involved in the show did not want him playing the character because he's not trans and that they sort of got together and came up with a plan to get him fired. But of course, that doesn't excuse or explain any of his, you know, abusive behavior Mm -hmm. on the set, which he admits, you know, would go from the lowest 
person on the totem pole to like you know an assistant coming to get him in his trailer to Jill Soloway that mm-hmm. you know the high. so no one was spared from his wrath and some people might say that's that's reason enough that you know justification mm-hmm. for him not to to have that job anymore but as far as you know this conspiracy that he was ousted for for his his you know cisgender status I don't know. I just know that it came up a lot, and he certainly was was pushing that theory as well. And there's sort of a lot of palace intrigue aspect to this, right? I mean, there are people that will argue that Jill Solway and Transparent, really, a lot of the success of the show is attributable to this Jeffrey Tambor performance that was winning Emmys right off the bat. And yet, it sounds like the way he was initially notified of his termination was not necessarily handled all that well. And, and you know, the implication from him is that it, it, it seemed disloyal and un, inappropriate to get rid of him via a text message, right? Yeah. Well, you know, there's no nice way to tell someone they're fired, right. and certainly not in these circumstances. So I sympathize with Jill in that way. You know, he also feels that she hasn't come out in support of him enough. And she was quite frank in telling me that, that she couldn't really, you know, come out in favor of him and against the accusers, that uh, it just wasn't possible. And so I, I feel she was in a really sticky place because she was in service of this transgender community that took her under her wing and whose story they entrusted to her. And to this actor who, you know, brought the story alive and won all these awards and and maybe the show would never would have quite worked if it hadn't been with him. It's, it's hard to say. So... Talk, if you can, about where you met up with Tambor and what his day-to-day life and state of mind are like today. Is this a guy who is just getting on with things, or is he having a hard time with all of this? He was definitely having a hard time. He he looked tired and very emotionally spent and sort of stunned. You know, he kept referring to being in this fugue state, and you could tell that, you know, this had really gotten to him. And by the end of the afternoon, it had gotten to me, too. It was very draining, emotionally draining to be with him. And you said he broke down how many times? He broke down five times crying, yeah. The character is very close to him. You know, he would speak in terms of death and grieving and that, and that seemed very sincere to me, that it wasn't just the end of a job. It, It really was the death of someone who had become, you know, part of him. And, of course, you know, all the criticism and, and the you know, he's been turned from this folk hero to a villain. He's trying to figure out how he maneuvers the next stage of his career. Well, this, that's what yeah. I want to ask you, because, I mean, just to set the stage, this is this is a podcast called Awards Chatter. In terms of awards, he is actually technically in the running this year again for Transparent, having been nominated last year and won the two years prior. This is because the season that is eligible this year is the one that aired or or streamed in the fall of last year. And yet, despite his track record, there is nobody that gives him any prayer in hell of even being in the running this year. It's not that the performance has changed. It's that the community, I guess, that's a reflection of the fact that he's sort of become a bit of a pariah. At the same time, he is also potentially going to be in the running for Arrested Development because that show is coming back on Netflix and he is in new episodes there. So where does Jeffrey Tambor stand at the moment? I don't know. It's, it's a good question. As far as awards go, you know, it's not just him. It seems like Amazon has completely abandoned the entire show in terms of, of the way they're promoting their series. And so, you know, I, I think nothing from the show should expect to get nominated, although I'm not the the awards pundit. And then as far as Arrested goes, you know, they're entering into what should be an awkward period where they're going to have a premiere and media appearances. And, you know, he's going to be shoulder to shoulder with the rest of his cast. And I'm sure he's going to be asked questions about this and they are going to be asked questions. I don't know. I, I, for me, I doubt that Arrested is going to get him an Emmy nomination. I just think things are just a little too touchy right now for awards. But as far as his career goes, gee, I don't know. I mean, he's 73 years old to begin with. There's, It's actually, I think he was the oldest person ever to win an Emmy in the category in which he won for those two years. Normally at 73, you're not working that much at this high a level to begin with. So I don't know where that leaves him. Yeah, you know, part of all this grieving, you know, as I interpret it, was that he knew that this was the role of a lifetime coming off, you know, a perfect hat trick of of roles and that 
he realistically doesn't see at this point another part like this coming along. But as he put it to me, you know, he's just trying to get through this day by day. And uh, right now, you know, he's in the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. And I think he's just trying to put some distance between it. I think that's why he did the story. He thought maybe that that could sort of sort of put a period on it and he could move on. Whether the public feels the same way is yet to be seen, I guess. Well, it is a fascinating story. Seth Abramovich, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. And now for my interview with Samantha B. Over the course of our conversation at Full Frontal's offices in Midtown Manhattan, the 48-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, why, for much of her adolescence in Canada, she was essentially a juvenile delinquent, and what motivated her, just before graduating from high school, to clean up her act, how she first discovered that she was funny and broke into sketch comedy in Toronto, and how, while there, she was discovered by The Daily Show, which was struggling to find a sufficiently funny woman stateside, what her fondest memories and biggest takeaways were from her 12 years working under Jon Stewart and alongside a host of other talented comics who also now have late-night shows of their own, including Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, Trevor Noah, and Jordan Klepper. Why, when Stewart announced his departure in 2015, she decided not to stick around and wait to see if she would be offered the chance to succeed him as The Daily Show's host, but instead headed over to TBS... How, with Full Frontal, her overall mission and screen persona were already in place prior to the presidential election on November 8th, 2016, but how Donald Trump's unexpected victory changed the day-to-day challenges of putting together the show, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We always begin with stuff that I guess you could very easily Google, but okay. just for the record, where sure. were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? I was born in Toronto, mm-hmm. in the province of Ontario, yes. in Canada. And my dad, he worked for Humber College for a while, but he set up computer systems for companies. So he kind of worked as a consultant. Mm-hmm. And my mother worked for the government. She worked for Revenue Canada. And my stepmom worked for Humber College. <laughs> I've got a you know, big kind of family in that well, sense. Well, I actually read that your grandmother was a particularly important person She in your life. was. I lived with her for a really long time. She was also the secretary of the school that I attended, the grade school. The grade so school. So the Catholic grade school that I went to. So she was a total fixture in my life. Well, and so how was it that you spent a lot of your childhood with her? Well, my parents were really young, yeah. actually, when they had me. My mom was had just turned 19. Wow. So I was like a teen birth, teen, you know, yeah. and she was just sort of she was just more equipped to take care of me for the right. early years of my life. And so I think around the age of eight, I went to live with my I ended up living with my mom for a while. And then my mother moved to a rural community. Mm -hmm. She bought a farm actually just outside of Ottawa, Canada. Mm -hmm. And she was like, yay, we're moving to a farm. And I was like, "Mm, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not doing that. And so so I moved back in with with my grandmothers, but I spent so much time with her. This is your mother's mother. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Just a kind of random aside, but why, do you have any theory about why so many of the funniest people come from Canada? You know what? It's so funny. People ask me that all the time. I have no idea, but we do have, there is a very robust comedy community, I will say. It's like a very DIY kind of comedy scene. And there were, certainly when I was coming up, there were plenty of spaces that you could go and just kind of used to sell enough drink tickets to justify your being right. there. But there were a lot of really interesting and cool spaces where you could go and perform. So the, the comedy scene was really quite robust, I would say. And we're also, the winter is cold. Right. You have to amuse yourself. <laughs> and there's a great tradition of comedy, too. Yeah. So you kind of want to live up to that on well, some level. Before, I guess, you even really probably were even thinking about getting into comedy of any mm-hmm. sort, I was kind of surprised to learn that that you were you were a little bit of a juvenile delinquent. I was a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> that is true. Well, what was I that had about? a very brief period. <laughs> it's actually, you know, it's funny because I talk about it. It seems so shocking and strange. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't have good feelings about it. It's not like I'm proud and I want my children to like follow in my beautiful tradition of rebellion. Right. But I'm glad that I got the rebellion out of my system very early. Yes, so better I was than about late. in the 15, I was about 15, 16 when what that did this was happening. Entail? 
I had a boyfriend and he was a bad influence. You know, it's always a boy. <laughs> it's always a bad influence, an outside figure. Because right. I was really a Catholic school girl. Mm-hmm. Gold star, study, straight A student. Right. And so I went through that brief period for a year and a half or two years where we stole car. I mean, we stole cars together. You were a participant. Oh, totally. Yes. <laughs> a very willing, very willing, right. very active participant in a lot of so what was the, is it just the thrill of it or what was the appeal? No, I didn't find it thrilling. I was actually really quite terrified, but interesting. We already talked about, well, (laughs) it was for practicality purposes, really in our lives, because my parents hated him. Yeah. I mean, they loathed him. (laughs) I mean, they really, probably their loathing of him drove me deeper into his arms. Right. And his parents loathed me. Equally, right. I mean, for different reasons. And we just never had any place to go. And it was cold out. We couldn't go anywhere. Nobody would have right. us. We weren't allowed in each other's homes. So I, we were just like hang out in cars, quite honestly. <laughs> we were dead, really. Well, we won't harp on this much longer, but I, mm-hmm. I just want to confirm if one of these, the craziest thing is actually, that I came across is actually true. Mm-hmm. Did you... <laughs> Self-harming sounds like something different than what I'm implying here. Oh, but my gosh. What, what, uh, did you do something with your hand? I did. How did you hear about that? That's uh, you know, fascinating. Dig into your past there. I guess. I did. Yes, I did. It was so stupid. <laughs> this I do regret. This was just a bad idea. But right. there was a real... That couple of years was a very strange time of just total... Not an inability to... I just had no ability to sense consequences of any kind. Like like just high school com- years. High school years, yeah. but early high school uh-huh. years. Because actually, very shortly after this period of right. my life, and actually very shortly after the incident I'm about to describe, right. I snapped out of it hard. I just woke up one day and went, what am I doing? Like, right. what path am I going down? Right. This is not okay. <laughs> and I did a full return to being a straight-A student and a great... Just in time. Just in time. Right. Like, I saved myself. Right. I just woke up alert. <laughs> Just the blinders came off because I'd been such a good student prior to this. There was a, a season in high school, the Christmas, the Christmas exams, I blew them off. I didn't go to them. I didn't study for the exams. And therefore, I didn't feel like I could even go to the exams. So I just did not go because mm-hmm. I didn't want to fail them. And I thought if I just don't go, there's I'll figure out I'll, I'll <laughs> Way back up. end yeah. right, right, right. a reason to have not been there. And my brilliant idea was that I slipped on the ice and sprained my hand or broke my hand. And so then I, I attempted to break my own hand, my writing hand, the hand that I rely on yes. every single day. I thought, this is the best idea ever. I mean, this is just like the fog of teen <laughs> years for me. I thought, I, my, my idea, this idea is terrific. No, it's <laughs> it's infallible. And how did you go? No one this? will ever figure it out. And so I was with my bad boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And even he was amazed that I wanted to do this. <laughs> like even he, it turned, he just did not know what to do with me. I really was in a state. Right. And I was like, I need you to break my hand tonight. You're going to break it with a rock. And he was like, I am not going to do that. And I was like, do it. Oh break it. God. So I put my hand on the bumper of a car. This is such a sad story. Hey, but there's a happy ending. So. I don't want to be a bad example <laughs> for people. I'm just, don't do what I did. PSA, don't break your hand. Don't yeah. ever yeah, even consider this. But this right. is just, anyway. So I put my hand on the bumper of a car. And I was like, hit it, hit it. I found a boulder. I gave it to him. I was like, hit my hand with a rock until it breaks. And he was like, I can't, I can't do it. And I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I did it. And then he you did it to yourself. Yeah, I did it to myself. And then he did it. And it did not break. But it was really, there were a couple of really hard hits on my yeah. hand. So it swelled it swelled up instantly. Like oh, it just went, wow. it just blew up, yeah. you know? And I was like, good, thank you. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> really? And did it work? Got like you out of your psychopath. exams? Well, that was so late at night. And I was like wearing pearls and a cashmere sweater. <laughs> it, was in the, and it was in the winter. It was very cold. And so I was like, now we have to go to the hospital because I need, I need to have been seen by a doctor and right. I want to get out of these exams. 
So I went to the doctor. They were like, did you try to break your hand? And I was like, no, idiot. I <laughs> slipped on the ice. And they, of course, they did not believe me. It was two o'clock in the morning. Like this yeah, what were you doing? girl yeah, right. with like my head was half shaved, but I was like very respectable looking still. Uh-huh. And this half broken hand. So I got my little wristband yeah. at the hospital and I went home and I woke my mom up and I was like, I didn't do any of my, like I honestly shoved her in the night. She was sleeping <laughs> with I your went, other hand. Yeah. With my other hand, I was like, wake up, wake up, wake up. She was like, Oh, what's going on? I'm like, I, I sprained my hand. I, I didn't do any of my Christmas exams. See in the morning. <laughs> she was like, what is happening? You're a horrible child. Oh my God. And then I transferred myself out of the high school that I was in and I forged all the documents to change high schools oh my God. between December and January. And then in January, I became a good student again. I was a normal person from there on. Well, yeah, you must have been a good student because you, you go to McGill. That's a good, <laughs> very did. good school. Yeah, I did. But then again, after a year, you wanted out of, out of there? It was more like I just wanted to leave Montreal. It was, yeah. it was a kind of a lonely experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just needed to be around some people that I knew. So I Including moved to closer Ottawa. to your mother now. Closer to my mom. Yep. But I guess at. University of Ottawa, the, the one of the big things that happened was it was there that you first performed in some way? Yeah, definitely. I thought that I would go to law school. I thought that I would be, even though I had a criminal past, which I never <laughs> caught up with me. Were you actually mercifully. arrested? No, no, I was not. Yeah. I was not. I definitely could have been, but I wasn't. Right. Although I will say also in my defense, because I think that people think that I speak about this in too cavalier a fashion, but I'm actually just trying to be honest. Right. I do feel like I've spent a lot of years trying to repay that yes, debt to society yes, yes. in different ways. Okay? Point so taken. <laughs> let's not imagine that I feel like I got off and was like, meh, giving the finger to society. Right, right. I definitely have <laughs> diligently worked to be a very responsible person. True. Yeah, I was on track to go to law school, I guess. Mm-hmm. That was my intention. Mm-hmm. Not that I wanted to do that, but just that I did was on track to be one of the only college grads in my family or like, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I thought I needed to find a profession Mm -hmm. and that seemed to be a profession that I would be inclined toward. Mm -hmm. And so while I was tracking for that, I needed an easy class to take just to keep my (laughs) just to keep my GPA up. Right. Right. And so I took a theater class because I thought it would be really easy and I loved it. I really loved it. But then one way that you could get, credit in the class everybody had to participate in a production right in some capacity and so i was like i don't know i'll just audition to be in the stupid thing like i don't even know <laughs> and i did get a part in this play and it was a singing it was a solo song and a couple of great scenes in a brecht play i loved it so much there were so many things I didn't know. I did not know that when you did a play, you were supposed to read the whole play. <laughs> I only read my own scenes. <laughs> oh, my God. I knew so little about it. The but performance I, must have been a pleasant surprise then. I have to tell you that I loved it immediately. <laughs> there was no question that and everything changed after that. Right. I definitely loved it. I had no fear about it. I don't know why. And so when you graduated from University of Ottawa, now instead of you know going down the law track, how do you then pursue acting as a career? It's difficult. It's a terrible decision to make. (laughs) No one in my family was excited by it, for sure. Everyone in my family was excited that I would have some type of, like, a future, Mm. you know? (laughs) (laughs) And they were very thrilled by that. Mm -hmm. So getting some waitering jobs and trying your hand in the acting business did not seem to be a practical future. And it was was entirely impractical. So it was hard. It was a really hard road. I waited a lot. I struggled a lot. I didn't get hired for a long time. Mm -hmm. A long time. It was really only when I started doing comedy that I legitimately started getting hired. And the first thing in comedy was what? Well, I started doing, it wasn't that I was getting paid to do comedy. It's just that when I started doing, I started doing sketch comedy. Mm. Like I was ever so slightly getting paid to do a little bit of theater here and there, like a play a year, mm-hmm. you know, because when you're a struggling actor, just getting one job something. a year, yeah. just getting something yeah. can really, can feed you for not feed you literally but it can feed your soul or your desire but you were i saw you'd gotten some good commercials yeah but that really was only after i started doing sketch comedy. i started doing sketch comedy because i just i ended up just liking it yeah it was fun and then as i got more into that it gave me a reason to be a performer and it fulfilled all of my performing needs which 
relaxed me yeah. when I was auditioning for things because I felt like I didn't need those jobs. Mm-hmm. And really the key to getting any job in the acting industry is to not care about getting the job, mm-hmm. which is a cruel reality right. of it because they can smell the fear on right. you if you really need the job. <laughs> well, and so you were in one sketch group mm-hmm. and then you go to the, the one that I think is now more known, Atomic Fireballs. Mm-hmm. So how did you first get into sketch comedy even? Well, there was never any stand-up for you, right? You were never- No, I never did stand-up, no. Well, my boyfriend at the time, who mm-hmm. is now my husband. Yes. Who you met? Who I met doing children's, children's theater, theater. <laughs> was doing sketch comedy, and he found success at it, actually. Yeah, they yeah. did very well. They had a big following. They were called The Bob Room. And they did a couple of episodes of a TV show. Like They were sought after, and they were thought to be one of the premier kind of sketch troops in the Toronto scene. Mm-hmm. And Jason always encouraged me to do it. He definitely thought that I would have an aptitude for it. And I was doing another play, which was like a teen play where you go around to high schools and it's very instructive. (laughs) (laughs) I was amazing in it, but I, you know, I had made great friends with the, the cast and someone that I knew just through a couple of connections. My friends, Peter and Matt had a comedy troupe and Craig, these three guys and the woman in their troop, they were called catch 21 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the woman in their troop had bailed on them. She was sick or she had to withdraw from the troop for some reason. And they asked me just to fill in for Mm -hmm. her. And Matt was like, you will love this. I just trust me. You are going to be great at this. You're going to love it. And so I did it. And the instant that I did it, I knew that I loved it. I did love it. He was absolutely right. So can somebody actually, make a, enough to survive by doing sketch Absolutely comedy? Absolutely not. No, no it, way. In, it's in you Toronto, yeah. honestly do it for love. You right. do it for love and the hope that it will, someone will see you right. and you'll have an opportunity to do something else. And there's always, you know, there've been so many great sketch shows that yeah. have come out of Canada and there's the, SCTV, there, right? Yeah, there's something in the ether that makes people think that they're searching for the next big right. thing right. in the world of sketch. So there's that backdrop i guess well and crazily enough i guess in your case that is what happened with but like the daily show you would think Mm -hmm. could find a funny woman within the continental united states think so i know they saw a lot of people but there was something and this sounds like i'm disparaging myself but actually there you know i think they saw a lot of people they came to canada because of second city because of the connection through Second City, Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I think they just thought that there would be women there that they could look at. I was not at Second City. They would never have hired me. <laughs> yeah, how did they find the Atomic Fireballs or find well, you? or the, My agent, actually, they had set up a day where they were seeing all the women from Second City. Mm-hmm. And just the guy who organized it was friends with my agent at the time. And he didn't have enough women to make it yeah. make the day credible. So he was like, do you have any women on your roster that you can like throw into the mix? And she asked me if I had any interest in it, like thinking that I would not. But The Daily Show was my favorite show. I was the only person at the audition who knew the show. I was going to say, like, I guess what, I can't imagine it was that big in Canada at that point. Yeah. Well, it was big in my house. In your house. Yeah. But it was not it was not a huge juggernaut right. by any stretch. So and this is like 2003? That was in 2003. Yeah. Yeah, that was 2003. So what did the audition entail and how soon after did you find out, you know, what was going on? Well, I prepared for it within an inch of my life. Like, it was <laughs> like my Olympics. Because <laughs> you knew it, if <laughs> it happened. Well, you know, when you live in Canada and you're trying to make it work, you never think that a U.S. show, because all of these tantalizing U.S. shows would come right. and just see people but never hire anybody out of Canada like never ever so it wasn't even really a thought in my head that they would hire me because I just am not a great auditioner Mm -hmm. quite frankly and I was getting ready to kind of get out of the business so I knew that I wanted to do the very best job possible I knew that I just wanted to while I was working at an advertising agency and stuff I was just kind of like transit I was on my way out of show business Uh it was not I had done all right. I had done things. It was not, it was not nothing. But I felt like the struggle was not something that I wanted to be in Mm -hmm. for, you know, 30 more years. So I thought with the Daily Show audition, I was like, I'll go out with a bang. I'll go out with the best audition of my life. 
it's a show I truly care about. Maybe it'll make them laugh. Like I'll just do a really good job and then I can feel proud. Like I did something and then they hired me. It's crazy. (laughs) Do you remember where you got the news? I do. I mean, I auditioned for them. It was a pretty simple audition. And by the way, I, I wanted to say that I think that they were looking for, it wasn't just that they were looking for a woman who could deliver their brand mm-hmm. of comedy, but they also wanted to hire someone who looked a little spent. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, I know that they really had a specific, like, I think they were really looking for someone a little older, mm-hmm. like someone who could be credible as a, a reporter, someone who'd been around a little while. They weren't looking for that, like, super young. Well, let's just be clear. You were only 34. I was 34, but, you know, they weren't looking for an ingenue. Like, right, they weren't, right, 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 they right. specifically were not looking for that. Right. So that was great for me, right. is what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> still attractive, but, like, you know, <laughs> it hasn't been the easiest ride, okay? <laughs> so, so you get a call or something? Yeah, I got a call back I had to come to New York for a day and I was I was pretty smart about it actually they wanted to fly me in and out the same day but I was like I will pay my own money I will stay in a hotel Mm -hmm. I will go and see a taping of the show the night before to get a feeling for the studio I actually like the space is very important to me I like to just be in it just to know what I'm dealing with I don't like to see something for the first time and then have to do something so I I went to see the show the night before. John Malkovich was the guest. I was amazed. I was very impressed. But it did settle me to just kind of know where I was going to be. And it was really helpful. Yeah. And then I came in. I did my callback with John. And then I left. And I was like, well, I left it all on the floor. What can I say? If I don't get the job, it's not because of me. It's not because of anything I did. It's just did you because have to they prepare did. something or did they give you something to do? They gave me scripts. Yeah. Yeah, they gave me a couple of scripts to memorize. Yeah. Honestly, they were someone else's scripts. Like, they were Steven's scripts that I had seen the bit. Like so you actually knew how to deliver uh, it. Well, I didn't want to do it exactly like right. I mean, we're all sort of doing an impression of Steven. When you audition, <laughs> you're always doing an impression of Steven. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's fine. Right. But I didn't do it exactly as right. I did, although it was cl- very close. <laughs> very close. Right. But I knew it. I knew the material really, right. really well. Yeah. And so... You were, what, at the advertising job? I was at the advertising (laughs) job, yeah. And my agent called me, and she was like, she was as shocked as I was. She was like, I don't know how to tell you this, but you got the job. Oh, my God. So I went into my boss's office, and I told him that I quit. Like, I just quit because I was terrible at that job anyway. I really was not doing him any favors by continuing. (laughs) He was my friend. I loved working. You know, I loved him. But I wasn't doing him any favors by being his employee. So I quit. (laughs) And then he took me out and we went and get martinis at the top of the Park Hyatt. It was nice. nice. So what this means now is you have to move to New York. Yeah. You... I believe did not come with your husband at, at first. At first, because I definitely thought I was going to get fired. Really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, you know, it's a very Canadian approach to this whole thing. But I was like, I'm definitely getting fired. So don't you displace yourself? <laughs> right. We had a we owned a house. You know, right. we were married. Right. We bought a house. So we had a stable existence in Toronto. So I was like, hold on. And he was working on something. I feel like he had a he had a long run on. Queer as folk or something. Mm-hmm. There was a show that was he he had a part on it, right. so he had work to do. It was, it was he had stuff to do in town. Okay he was to... shooting a sketch show. Yeah. There was stuff. He was busy. Right. So I came on my own and I rented an apartment just over there in Hell's Kitchen. Like I can see it from right. here. Wow. Close to the studio. Yeah. And I lived in a little studio apartment, and then we kind of like did weekends or every two weeks we would see each other. I mean, we went into debt. For the first because of the travel year, because of all yeah, the travel, yeah. it was ex- very expensive. And but were you immediately? So you you arrive at the mm-hmm. offices here, and mm-hmm. the only woman at the sh- at on-air mm-hmm. talent, right? Mm-hmm. And were that way until for like five six years yeah, a long until time. Kristen Shaw showed up. So was it lonely and intimidating, or were they very welcoming, and you were right at home, or how would you describe? You well, know, everyone was pretty welcoming, but. Every, I mean, everyone was nice, but very busy. It's insane making a strip show. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's got time to hold your hand and mm-hmm. show you the ropes. Like, as nice as everyone was, they were really doing their own jobs mm-hmm. to the very best of their abilities. So everyone was lovely, but no one could show me anything, mm-hmm. really. It is such a job that 
I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was just trial and error. Just start shooting stuff. Just start going on field pieces. Just start traveling. And so would your job responsibilities at that time, they were including you write your own stuff as well or no? No, the writers wrote stuff for the studio, but then the area where I really carved out something for myself was in the field department because I was willing to go anywhere <laughs> and do anything. Your first thing any, was South Dakota, right? I think I, first I went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That was my first piece. That right. was like three flights. Oh that's, my God. You know, that's like the flight that the more experienced correspondents are like, why don't we let the new right. girl do it? <laughs> <laughs> and were you already at that time personally a, a political junkie or just you kind of have to become one? Well, I was already. I yeah. mean, that was... It was did represent the merging of my deep, deep interests mm-hmm. in a in a way that I never. Th- I mean, that's why I enjoyed the show. Yeah, frankly, that's why I was such a fan of the show. Right. So it was scary at first because I did think like, what if I'm not enough? What if I'm not knowledgeable enough? And I really was not that knowledgeable about the U.S. political system. Knowledgeable about it more than the average Canadian, but mm-hmm. it's not the system that you grow up no. in. So it's not in your DNA. And did I once read something where you you said sort of like. It's a little uncomfortable until you became a citizen with dual citizenship to even go after them in the way that you guys had well, to. Well, after a while, I reflected on the fact, listen, I mean, as soon as you come here, you start paying taxes. It's right. not like you're not participating. <laughs> like, there's no way that you're not paying taxes right. immediately right. upon arrival. So I was definitely contributing to the system, right. not just not just bleeding off of it. Right. But I was happy and proud to pursue citizenship. Mm-hmm. Like, that felt correct me because right. I mean I lived here for a long time my children were born here mm-hmm. it was just the right thing to do I right. wanted to be able to vote I think I should have done it earlier but honestly my kids were little babies and so it just became just yeah. for practical purposes yeah, yeah. it's hard to do all that paperwork when you have little infants so over the 12 plus I believe years that mm-hmm. you were there you overlapped with most of the people who mm-hmm. have now in fact many of your I don't know if you would even use the word competitors, but the other people who are doing what my you cohorts, do, my cohorts, your cohorts. So Stephen Colbert, John mm-hmm. Oliver, Larry Wilmore, yep. Trevor Noah was a guest yep. person occasionally there at that point still, mm-hmm. in addition to Corell and all these other yeah. guys, right? So it was a pretty interesting time. Is there anybody there who you particularly were close to or influenced by or took things away from that you've since applied in your own Adventures. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, obviously, I think I learned a tremendous amount from John mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no getting around it. He just is the best in the business. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, he was very encouraging. It was really hard work. You know, we spent a lot of our time just kind of like trying to interpret John's thoughts. Like, what would John want for this? And how would John feel about this? And he was, he, he was, he mentored me. Like, I mean, he mentored all of us, Mm -hmm. really. So I would say John was the main takeaway for sure. And as you look back at all those years there, is there a sketch or segment or something that you're particularly proudest of? I mean, I remembered you talking about the conventions, and I think Stephen also said that was like a highlight. The conventions were always really highlights because it was for the amount of work that you did. It was very satisfying. It was very, very satisfying to go to the conventions. They were really hard to do. Right. It's really challenging. It remains challenging. It was challenging doing my own show and going to the conventions. It's just hard to be out of your element and sticking cameras in people's faces and just chasing people around. That's not usually (laughs) what you do, and it is exhausting. One of the things that you were and are particularly good at is getting people to say things that do not reflect well on themselves in a way where they don't even realize that they're doing it. Well, I feel like I was always good at getting people to boil down the essence of how they feel about things. Mm -hmm. Like, I was not of the mindset to trick people. Mm -hmm. I never was. I was always actually transparent about what my intentions were, or I grew to be more and more transparent. Once I figured out that you didn't need to you didn't need to trick people into saying what they thought. You just right. needed to encourage them enough right. that they would feel comfortable <laughs> to say what they actually thought about right. things. So, and now with this show, of course, there's no artifice whatsoever. Like right. now, just openly <laughs> transparently right. so obvious. But <laughs> yeah, I think I tried to create an atmosphere for people in which they would feel comfortable to be themselves. 
Mm-hmm. They didn't always like how they sounded after the fact. But they said it. But it always was a reflection of how they truly felt. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's not my fault. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so can you clarify some chronology? Because in prepping for this, I've read sure. a whole bunch of articles where they're presenting it in different ways. Did yeah. you, when you left The Daily Show, uh-huh. had you already been aware, A, that John was leaving and or B, that someone other than you was going to be the next host. Did you know that? Well, I'll tell you the the chronology. So, okay, So in September of, I guess, 2014. Okay, well, I'll forget the year, but Mm -hmm. I think it's 2014. Mm -hmm. In September of 2014, TBS bought a script from Jason and I. Mm -hmm. For the detour. the detour. So we wrote a script for them. They greenlit it. We shot the pilot in December of 2014 in North Carolina. We loved it so much. We were like, this is it. We always knew the whole time we were there that our next step mm-hmm. was to work together on something probably scripted. Scripted, yeah. And we had been laying that groundwork for years. We sold lots of pilots. We sold film scripts. We were constant. We thought of ourselves and knew ourselves as producers and writers for sure Mm -hmm. and that would be our future and jason had produced movies in toronto like it was just a part of how we and we are do-it-yourself people Mm -hmm. so we filmed that in december and we loved it was a an incredible experience our collaboration with the network was great we loved the script we loved the family we loved the world that we created so we were dying for it Mm -hmm. to get greenlit as a series TBS at the time was in a period of transition, mm-hmm. so we didn't know. It just It's impossible to know. You just mm-hmm. cross your fingers and pray. So then January, I guess we were in the edit or they were reviewing it or whatever. And then I think in February, that is when John announced That's, that he yeah, was leaving. Correct. So there was a week-long period. We did not expect him to announced that he was stepping down. We didn't know what was happening with the detour and there was really nothing else happening. As soon as he stepped down, I guess, you know, conversations were happening about me, but it didn't seem realistic to me. When you say conversations were happening. Yeah. Were, everyone was like, well, who's going to replace John? But had you, had anyone said to you, would you be interested or anything Not like at that? All. No. So I didn't really know what was going to happen. We had a period of that week in February where we were a little bit lost Mm -hmm. and we knew that that day was coming. We knew that we were going, we knew that we were going to leave and we knew that the show would end for us. We didn't know which would come first. Mm -hmm. It's always shocking when it's real. For years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. When it's just all of a sudden real, it just materializes and you go, Oh, let me cry. (laughs) Okay. And then let me reset. Right. So we went out to LA as we had another little job to do. And while we were in L.A., TBS told us that they greenlit the detour, wow. which was incredible. Big news, yeah. The, and good timing. Huge news, great timing. And they basically, around that time, offered me the opportunity to do my own show. And in terms of late night slash talk show, mm-hmm. whatever, they had gotten into that for the first time with Conan. Mm-hmm. And so now they were looking to continue to grow that area. To grow that area, but I think they saw it, I mean, I'm paraphrasing i mean i'm like trying to get into their heads but Mm -hmm. i think that they saw a property i'm going to refer to myself (laughs) as a property that had great possibility yeah they saw tremendous potential and i give them an amazing amount of credit for that because there was no other network really going like hey we got to get her to do something particularly though weirdly you're saying including comedy central well did that bother you is that i would think that's a little weird that not well but here's the other question though in fairness do you think that it wasn't even an option i don't by the time they i don't know what was in i don't know what was in their heads but it did not seem like a real option to me you didn't think it was gonna happen yeah oh god no not even close even though people around me wanted to believe yeah, yeah, yeah. that to some extent, yeah. I knew the truth was that that was not an option. So at that point, though, when you're leaving to go to do mm-hmm. Full Frontal at TBS, if yeah. Full Frontal, if it had flopped and mm-hmm. been canceled after your 13 episodes that you were sure. guaranteed or whatever, what would you have done? Well, I would have been working on the detour. I mean, we, so you know, you we had our that pickup. Would have been your yeah, I would have focus. probably focused on, I would have focused on scripted, but it wouldn't look so, I mean, I had other ideas for late night shows for sure. 
I would have had to go around town and start pitching myself. Was there any sure. scenario where you would have stayed at the Daily Show under another anchor? No. I didn't think no, so. Yeah. No, you know, we were there for a long time. Yeah. I was there for 12 years. So yeah. it really didn't matter to me who the next person was. Right. It was just the right time to leave. Like, it was just the correct time. You know, right. if you look to the universe to tell you when to make a break, that was, that it. was it. That was it. So Jason left. I mean, the writing room for the detour started up, fired up in April. So he left. And then I left shortly after I left in May. Because we wrote all through the summer and shot all through the summer. And then I wasn't really getting full frontal going. They wanted to get that first season of The Detour shot. Right. And then we started firing up. And it helps to frontal. have them both at the same network so that you can coordinate. Yeah. We, they were generous about like a time frame. And so I didn't really start digging into full frontal in earnest. I left The Detour set a little early to mm -hmm. come back and start creating that. One of the first things that got a lot of attention after the announcement that you would eventually be doing Full mm -hmm. Frontal, but before it was on the air, was that Vanity Fair in 2015 oh, yeah. Yeah. runs this photo with like probably a dozen of the other late night people, mm -hmm. all men in, you know, suits and ties with mm -hmm. martinis and everything. It was just almost like, a, I don't know how they could have not realized what the reaction would be when meanwhile Dang you no. you and Chelsea Handler had been announced but not yet were yet not yet on yes. the air right and Trevor had been announced but he was not yet on he the air and he was in the oh, photo oh he was in there yes do you remember when you saw that for the first time what your I do reaction remember. was i was on long island it was in the fall it was like september or something like that and we were i was at a pumpkin patch with Jason and the kids we were picking pumpkins and there was a like a play area like a wooden mm -hmm. pirate ship area and people, I was on Twitter and people started tweeting this photo to me. And now as I'm actually my friend, Alana, who's a producer here and a correspondent here, she reminded me that she was like, oh my God, you got to get your face in there. And I was like, what? And then I looked and I was like, oh my God, I got my face in there. <laughs> and then I texted Miles, who's an executive producer here runs the field department and I was like do you have that photo you made of me because <laughs> he had made a photo of me as a centaur with laser eyes <laughs> for a different purpose and I just kept it in my phone because I was like this is funny yeah like this photo right and so he photoshopped it in for me and then I just tweeted it to them and then it like went it viral. blew up from there yeah. so Alana and Miles made that kind of happen but what that incident says to us is what you took it, and I assume, because I would have, as sort of this is a ridiculous it's, slight, It was just ridiculous. Right? It was just so silly. Right. It was just such a silly moment. But it was also the, the response project, yeah, the to your correction of it was there's an untapped audience here who's very supportive of the idea that yes. you should be in there. That was very gratifying. I actually felt that surge of, it was the, the first time, the first or second time where I really felt like, oh, there is, there are people here who are interested in this. Mm -hmm. This is we're going to be all right. There's an active group of people who care about right. this. Okay. I like it. <laughs> so early 2016, I think, is when you guys first went on the air, right? Mm -hmm. And just to give people a sense of the scale of it, it was you, mm -hmm. I guess, the showrunner, the right title for at that time, mm -hmm. Joe Miller, who had mm -hmm. been a writer at the Daily Show with yeah. you. And then how many other people worked, worked here and worked here? Uh, I don't have a strong sense of the numbers. Maybe like around 50 people. Mm -hmm. I think we have about 60 or 70 people now. So maybe slightly fewer than that right. then. But it, you you really have to assemble a pretty big team to do a show like this, no yeah. matter what. And for you, as with, interestingly, I think, Trevor, it seems like there was a concerted from day one effort to make sure that it was built from the ground up with unusual but shouldn't be you know shouldn't be unusual diversity right mm -hmm. in your so how do you go about that why was that important to you and how'd you go about it well i think the world was calling for that i think it just felt necessary mm -hmm. it's just in it was in our dna it continues to be so mm -hmm. it just makes a it makes a place better yeah it just makes a place it makes a point of view better makes the place more well-rounded and you ended up with i saw 50% women, something like one that. One third people of color or something. It's 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 good. I don't know, you know, obviously people have come and gone since then, so I don't actually know right, what the right, statistics right. are now, but it, we always have an eye to it. It's like just part of our routine, our hiring and our hiring routine. You guys 
have always been once a week. I guess it works out to 20, 21 minutes, right? For yeah, each. about 21 minutes. Why is that the format that makes the most sense for you? Once a week makes sense for me because, I mean, it's a very intense show. It's actually very intense. The research is deep. Mm-hmm. The research is deep. And I like to do field work. Yeah. I like to go out in the world. It's important to me. And you really can't do that and have a strip show. You can send people out, but you right. can't do it yourself. And I do like to do it. Mm-hmm. I like to send people out for sure, but mm-hmm. I also like to do it myself. Yeah. It's my love. I love it. And I knew that it wouldn't be possible. You just can't travel. A four shows a week takes everything you've mm-hmm. got. Everything you've mm-hmm. got. And I have, not to say that, it's not like I'm like, well, I have kids, but I do have a life that I enjoy. <laughs> right. And I wanted to be able to live my life somewhat, right. even knowing that is still so absorbing. Yeah. Doing one show a week takes all of my available time mm-hmm. away from my children, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, when I'm here, I'm truly here. When I'm with them, I'm truly with them, and there is nothing else. Sometimes I work out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my free time. <laughs> well, so how clear was your vision when you, after all these years of working at a show where somebody else was ultimately mm-hmm. the the decider. Mm-hmm. Now you're you come here things like no desk, things like the structure and the way sure. that you're going to pack so much at a rapid pace into uh-huh. the 21 minutes. Did you have that whole idea in mind from the very beginning or did it evolve? Well, we definitely started the show with the intention to like to kick the barn doors in. Mm-hmm. That was what we said from the very beginning <laughs> that the show could should absolutely come from the gut kick the kick the doors in and that is it and have Mm -hmm. it be the purest essence of you know how we truly feel about Mm -hmm. things and so we've stayed pretty true we've stayed true to that and we didn't know what it would look like that's the thing like until you put it on its feet it didn't really probably feel that way until we did our first episode right you know it's hard to rehearse a show like this. Like you do these test shows, but they're weird and yeah. they're not really fun and you're trying stuff out and right. none of the, you know, your monitors aren't ready and everything. <laughs> There's all kinds of technical problems. Right. What was the biggest learning curve to be a host now as opposed to, and not only the host, but the basically the, the person overseeing everything? It's the really the biggest learning curve is actually just like handling a big staff of people. That is yeah. not... Management. Was, Management is very difficult. It challenges me every single day. Mm -hmm. It's not what I went into comedy for. That's for sure. It's a real challenge. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to do well. I fail at it constantly. (laughs) I succeed at it in other ways. Like that has by far and away been more difficult than the product itself. I've spoken for this podcast with a number of these other folks that are in this still pretty small club of doing some variation of what you mm-hmm. do. And I thought it was interesting. I always ask, like, do you watch the others? Is there a value to seeing what they're doing or how they're doing it or whatever? And most of the answers have been because either not having time mm-hmm. to watch them or not wanting to inadvertently incorporate things sure. that some people say they watch monologues, like for oh. the, I guess, what's your attitude about? I mean, it sounds like time's a crunch anyway. It's always a time crunch. When I'm relaxing, I don't find it relaxing to watch comedy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at all. I don't watch the other shows. We have someone here who does yeah. to make sure that we don't cross streams, you know, content-wise. Mm-hmm. But I don't really watch them yeah. because it's not so much, I don't know. I, I just, I don't really have time and it doesn't feel like fun. It, that feels yeah. like work to me, right. even though those guys are great. I mean, they're all great, but you, you, you go, well, I... I'd like to watch something that's outside of this world. Right. Just if I'm going to watch something, right, right, let me right. let it be called <laughs> let it be called the midwife. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like for all of late night or talk shows, mm-hmm. and certainly for yours, there was a very clear turning point, which was election night. Mm-hmm. What were you doing? How did your plans change as it became clear that Trump was going to win? And also, just in a bigger picture, I I read about you looking at your social media that night and your whole outlook changed. So just as it sunk in that night, Mm -hmm. how did your professional life change? Well, it was a really, it was like slowly descending into a, into a sunken place for sure (laughs) that night because we had a show the next day that week we did a show on the Monday and we were 
had planned a big post-election show on the Wednesday with a balloon drop and a really fancy blazer and <laughs> a musical guest who was going to sing like good as hell. I mean, you know, this really fun show that right. we had planned. So as the realization crept upon us, we actually had to change the entire show to restructure, you know, and thank God we have just the most amazing writers and the most amazing producers and people had shot material. Everybody had the correspondence had gone out and shot man on the streets and material at the polling places. And we had to rejigger that completely mm -hmm. to reflect the new reality. Not that we, it was actually not that hard to find a different point of view right. with the same material. Right. Actually, it was just a very, it was an all nighter for right. sure. Everyone worked so, so hard. It was an all, we pulled an all nighter basically. And, and the social media, you were like, that's it. Oh, I read my, I started reading my social media in the night and I was, it was crazy. Like I just, I can't even accurately give you a picture of it. It just, the turn was so palpable into like darkness mm -hmm. and it felt so dangerous because people were emboldened. All of a sudden, by, people were so emboldened, yeah. and they were sending me the most horrific messages. All of these people just crawled out from <laughs> under a rock to say the worst possible stuff on social media. It was shocking. Right. It was shocking, and people had always said terrible stuff, but like this was in particular, I felt a shift in the air, like all the oxygen. And as he. Left actually assume mm. office and mm -hmm. whatever i'm trying to remember was the what you have called the furious woman persona basically uh -huh. the the sort of tone of i guess outrage that yeah. that your persona as as the host has was that there even before the election or was that really there afterwards? sure it was there before but i don't remember it as keenly yeah it was there before yeah. for sure because things that happened during that election cycle especially when he became when he became the leader of the party, right. I mean, that was when he secured the nomination. It was so crazy and shocking. And the things and the dog whistles yeah. that we had been hearing all along were felt so threatening and crazy. And we took a strong, the strongest possible stand to repudiate mm -hmm. all of those messages and still he won. <laughs> so, yeah, the outrage was before, was, there. was pre-election. But we did think that, not that, you listen, no one here thought that Hillary Clinton was going to solve all of our problems. Right. Like, no one here thought we wouldn't have a show if she was the right. president. There's, oh, there's, there's always, stuff. always stuff. There's always material. There's always stuff to talk about 21 minutes a week. Right. Now, there's stuff to talk about 800 minutes a week. Right. You know. And probably changing up until the minute you go on the air because there's so much it's happening. So, it's rapid fire. It's it's impossible to even keep up with. I'm sure something, since we've been talking, I'm sure something terrible <laughs> yeah. has happened. We could be at war with... We don't even... Well, who knows? Well, it's exciting to find we'll out. We'll all but find out. Do you have a theory for why Hillary did not win? I You said something here just in reference to your own as you were getting ready to go on the air, quote, there are plenty of people who won't tune in because a woman's voice bothers their eardrums. Their ear canals can't handle the sound of my shrill voice talking <laughs> at them about a subject, close quote. <laughs> I mean, as a glass ceiling breaker <laughs> in your own field, do you see what she was up against? Sure. And we kind of interpret the way that we interpreted it here. We thought that she would win mm -hmm. by a narrow margin, for sure. There's a lot of... I mean, the misogyny was, I mean, it was very apparent yep. during the campaign. But we thought that she would win. And then we thought that the next four years would just be like riding a tidal wave of the deepest misogyny right. pouring out of people. Right. Like we just thought like immediately she would be under investigation and right. like <laughs> under indictment and all of these things would happen to block everything that she did. And we knew that it would be incredibly frustrating and f would feel dangerous and terrible. But I wasn't prepared for her to lose. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think anyone's here. No, no. Well, the last thing is just a very rapid fire three things. Oh, sure. That's okay. Oh, I'm so bad at rapid fire. No, well, Watch me go really slow. You can do it slow. That's fine. Okay. Number one, your show has had overall phenomenal success since it went on the air. I saw after the first year, its viewership was up 167%. Jeez, that I didn't know that. That doesn't happen very often. That's lovely. Uh, but especially with adults, 18 to 34. Good. To what do you Choice. attribute that? Prime You know, meat. with that demographic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, can you see why that would be? Why would young people in particular be tapping into your show? Well, 
I do think that the one thing that the show is, is it's very authentic experience. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> like, and young people can sniff that out. They yes. can sniff out the inauthentic like 10 miles away. Yes. So, I mean, I like to think that it, that you can feel the reality. Number two, what's the biggest danger that you feel of hosting the show in the sense like, what could you do that would cause a, an episode to go off the rails? Oh, I could do anything to cause them. it would be easy for an episode to go off the rails. I mean, it could go off the rails. We have, you know, we have a show. Our first show back is next week. Mm-hmm. Something could happen at three o'clock in the afternoon on show day that could cause the show to go off the rails. You know, it's not just what we would do. I think the world is happening at a very frenetic pace now. There's no predictability in our lives right now. We've also said it's sort of you've got to navigate, I think, the tightrope of you got to be outraged, but also funny. Yeah. If you and take it too seriously, it's If you a- take it too seriously, then you're too much of an activist. <laughs> if you don't take it seriously enough, it's not enough, you know? So it's always negative. You're always kind of like, nav- there is a fine line that you have to ride. So lastly, we've seen what it's like for you with Trump, where on the one hand, comedically, I guess there's endless reserves of things to make fun of. But on the other hand, there are, you know, like we were just talking about the, the fact that it's at the price of the world yes. being insane. So I would you, happily take I would take a more predictable world and just like a slight struggle to find <laughs> three more jokes. It's very noble, very selfless. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I'm a really good citizen. You're really lucky to have me right. now. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I thank appreciate you. it. It's yeah. my pleasure. This is really nice. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.